on the difficulty or impossibility of acclimatization, and this in turn affects the whole economic, ethnic and political destiny of present colonial holdings. If acclimatization is impossible, the alternative is an imported ruling class, constantly invalid and as constantly renewed, aided by a similar commercial body acting as superintendents of labor, the whole machine of government and economic exploitation is supported by a permanent servile native population, doing the preeminently tropical work of agriculture, which is so fatal to the white man in a torrid climate. This means that the conquering white race of the temperate zone is to be excluded by adverse climatic conditions from the productive but undeveloped tropics, unless it consents to hybridization, like the Spaniards and Portuguese of tropical America, in that national struggle for existence which is a struggle for space. It means an added advantage for the Mediterranean peoples, that they are more tolerant of a torrid climate than the Blondudans, whose disability in this regard is pronounced. It means that the aptitude of the Chinese for a wide range of climatic accommodation, from the Arctic Circle to the Equator, lends color to the yellow peril. In contrast to the monotonous extremes of climate in the hot and cold zones, temperate lands are characterized by the intermediate degrees of annual temperature and marked seasonal diversity which are so favorable to human development. In Arctic lands labor is paralyzed by cold as it is by heat in the enervating and overproductive tropics. In one, the growing season is too short and ill-favored, in the other, too long to stimulate man to sustained industry. Hence the temperate zones, whose climate avoids both these extremes and abounds in contrasts, whose summers are productive enough to supply food for the winter, and whose winters give both motive and energy for the summer's work, are richer in cultural possibilities and hence in historical importance. The advantage of the temperate zone is not only its moderate and adequate allowance of heat, but its contrast of seasons, beyond the range of a vertical Sunday grades of temperature change rapidly from latitude to a latitude and from summer to a winter, the seasons bring variety of activities, which sharply react upon one another, manufactures were in their origin chiefly winter industries, as they still are in small isolated communities, the modern factory system flourishes best in cooler parts of the temperate zone, where the agricultural demands of the summer, spreading over a shorter period, leave a longer time for winter work, and where that once long winter of the glacial period, by the scouring action of the ice cap, has reduced the fertile area of the northern fields, the factory system is also favored, as Heinrich von Triecht maintains, by the predominance of cool or cold weather, which facilitates the concentration of numerous workmen in large buildings, and renders possible long labor hours the year round, conditions unthinkable in a warm climate. The iron and steel industries which have grown up about Birmingham, Alabama, find that the long hot summers and mild winters reduce the efficiency of their skilled labor imported from the north. The length of the seasons is of conspicuous importance. It determines, for instance, whether a given climate permits continuous field work with summer and winter crops, whether field work is possible at all, and how long it is interrupted by excessive cold. Buckle maintains that climate not only enervates or invigorates man, but affects also the constancy of his work and his capacity for sustained labor throughout the year. He considers that no people living in a very northern latitude have ever possessed that steady and unflinching industry for which the inhabitants of temperate regions are remarkable, and assigns as a reason that the severity of the weather, and, at some seasons, the deficiency of light render it impossible for the people to continue their usual out-of-door employments. The result of this he finds to be desultory habits of work, which help to make the national character fitful and capricious. 
he cites an illustration of his principle the people of the Scandinavian and Iberian peninsulas, whom he finds marked by a certain instability and fickleness of character, owing to the fact that in Norway and Sweden agricultural labor experiences long interruptions, due to the severity of the winter and the shortness of the days, in Spain and Portugal owing to the heat and drought of summer, the extreme continental climate of northern of Russia with its violent contrast of the seasons, its severe and protracted winters, enables Leroy Beaulieu to make a safer application of this principle to the empire of the Tsars, which, unlike Scandinavia, feels no ameliorating effect from the mild Atlantic winds and commands no alternative industries like dairy farming, fisheries, and maritime trade. Hence Leroy Beaulieu attributes the unsystematic, desultory habits of work prevailing among the northern peasants to the long intermission of labor in winter and to the alternation of a short period of intense activity with a long period of enforced idleness. He finds them resembling southern peoples in their capacity for sudden spurts of energy rather than sustained effort, thinks them benumbed by the sloth of the far north, which is not unlike the sloth of the south. The dominant continental and central location of Russia enables its climatic extremes to operate with little check. The peripheral location of Scandinavia in the path of the Atlantic winds modifies its climate to a mild oceanic type, and its dominant maritime situation gives its people the manifold resources of a typical coastland. Hence Buckle's estimate of national character in the Scandinavian peninsula has little basis as to fact or cause. Irregularity of agricultural labor does not mean here cessation of all labor, and hence does not produce the far-reaching effect ascribed to it. Only about one-third of the Norwegian population is engaged in agriculture. The restriction of its arable and meadow land to 3% of the whole territory, and the fact that a large proportion of the people are employed in shipping and the fisheries, are due to several geographic factors besides climate. The same thing is true of Sweden in a modified degree. Caution should be exercised in drawing conclusions from climate alone or from only one phase of its influence. The duration and intensity of the seasons affects not only the manner of work, but the whole mode of life of a people. On the Yukon, in Iceland, and the high mountain valleys of the Alps, winter puts a check not only upon out-of-door labor, but upon all public or community life. Intercourse stops or is greatly restricted. The outside world drops away. In Iceland, the law courts are in session only in summer when the roads by sea and land are open. In the Kentucky mountains the district schools close before Christmas. When the roads become impassable from rain and snow, the summer is the gala time for funeral services. For only then can the preacher or circuit rider reach the graves made in the winter. Therefore the funerals in one community accumulate, so to speak. And finally, when leisure comes after the August harvest, they make the occasion for important social gatherings. Much of the influence of winter lies in its power to isolate. It is the economic effects of such periods of enforced idleness which are most obvious, both in their power to restrict national wealth and keep down density of population, when long, they limit subsistence to the products of a short growing season, except where local mining adds considerable sources of revenue. In the Russian government of Yaroslav, located on the northernmost bend of the Volga within the agricultural belt, and containing the chief inland wheat market of the empire. The field labor of four months must support the population for the remaining eight months of the year. The half of Russia included in the cold forest zone of the north maintains meagerly a sparse population, and can hope for an increase of the same only by the encouragement of industrial pursuits. Here the long winter leisure has created the handicrafts on which so many villages rely, and which in turn have given rise to peddling, 
as we have seen it do in high mountain regions where altitude intensifies and prolongs the winter season. Agricultural and industrial life are still undivert, just as in primitive communities. The resulting population has also the primitive mark of great sparsity, so that modern industry, which depends upon a concentrated labor force, is here inhibited. Hence Russian manufactures, which are so active in the governments of Vladimir, Moscow, and St. Petersburg, cease beyond the 60th parallel, which defines the northern limit of the agricultural belt and the beginning of the forest and the fur zone. See maps pages 8 and 612. The rigorous climate of Russia was undoubtedly one cause for the attachment of the peasants to the soil in 1593. This measure was resorted to at a time when the Muscovite dominion from its center in Great Russia had recently been extended at the expense of the Tartars, and had thus embraced fertile southern lands, which tempted the northern peasant away from his unfruitful fields. This attraction, coupled with the free and hopeful life of the frontier, met the migrant instinct bred in the peasant by the wide plains and far horizon of Russia, so that the north threatened to be left without cultivators. Later, the harsh climatic conditions of the north were advanced as an argument against the abolition of serfdom, on the ground that this system alone secured to the landed proprietor a steady labor supply, and guaranteed to the peasant his maintenance during the long, idle winter. The duration and severity of the cold season has put a drag upon the wheel of enterprise in Canada, as opposed to the warmer United States, the prairies of the Canadian Northwest, whose fertile soil should early have attracted settlement were a closed land till railroads could pour into it every summer from the warmer south and east a seasonal tide of laborers. These follow the harvest as it advances from point to point, and then withdraw in autumn either to the lumber camps of eastern Canada, Minnesota and Wisconsin, or to seek other forms of outdoor labor in the more southern states, thus lifting from the Canadian farmer the burden of their winter support. In the lower latitudes of the temperate zones, where the growing season is long and the dormant period correspondingly short and mild, we find agriculture based upon clearly distinguished winter and summer crops, as in the northern Punjab 30 degrees to 34 degrees NL, or producing a quick succession of valuable crops, where the fertility of the soil can be maintained by manures or irrigating streams, as in many of the warmer southern states and in Spain respectively, in Argentine, where tillage is extensive, land abundant, and population sparse, where, in fact, skimp farming is the rule. The shrewd cultivator takes advantage of the long-growing season to stretch out his period of sowing and reaping, and thus tills a larger area. The International Harvester Company of America, investigating the reason for the small number of reaping machines employed in Argentine in proportion to the area under cultivation, found that the simple climatic condition of a long-growing season enabled one reaper to serve about twice the acreage usual in the United States, because it could work twice as long, over and beyond slight local variations of climate and season within the same zone, which contribute their quota to economic and historical results. It is the fundamental differences between the hot, cold and temperate climatic zones that produce the most conspicuous and abiding effects. These broad belts, each with its characteristic climatic conditions and appropriate civilization, form so many girdles of culture around the earth. They have their dominant features of heat and cold, variously combined with moisture and aridity, which give a certain zonal stamp to human temperature and development. The two cold belts have little claim to the name of cultural zones, since their inability to support more than an insignificant population has made them almost a negligible factor in history. Compare maps pages 8. 9, and 612.
the discoveries and settlements of the Northmen in Greenland remained a barren historical event, though the Vikings' ships reached a new hemisphere. Iceland is the only land in the subarctic region which ever figured upon the stage of history, and its role was essentially passive. Such prominence as it acquired was due to its island nature and its situation in a swirl of the Gulf Stream, which ameliorates the worst climatic effects of its far northern location, and brings it just within the upper limit of the temperate belt. The wide subarctic lowlands of Russia and Siberia, which, from the Ural Mountains to the lower Amur River, stretch the cold zone well below the 60th parallel, have at times in the last three centuries and especially in the past decade thrown their great mass into the scale of Eastern Asiatic history. This has been possible because the hot summer characteristic of continental climates forces the July isoform of 20 degrees. C. northward over the vast heated surface of Asia nearly to the 60th parallel. Well within the borders of Siberia, it gives that belt the short but warm growing season with protracted hours of sunshine which is so favorable to cereals, lending to Omsk, Tomsk, Vitsk and all the stretch of Russian settlements in Siberia, an admirable summer climate like that of the Canadian Northwest. The North Temperate Zone is preeminently the culture zone of the Earth. It is the seat of the most important, most steadily progressive civilizations and the source of all the cultural stimuli which have given an upward start to civilization in other zones during the past three centuries. It contains the Mediterranean Basin, which was the pulsing heart of ancient history, and all the modern historically important regions of Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. The temperate belt of the Southern Hemisphere also is following its lead, since European civilization has been transplanted to other parts of the world. This is the zone which least suffers from the drawbacks of climatic monotony or extremes, and best combines, especially in the northern hemisphere, the wide range of annual and seasonal variety so favorable to economic and cultural development, with the incalculable advantage of large land area, man grew in the temperate zone, was born in the tropics, there, in his primitive, pre-civilized state, he lived in a moist, warm, uniform climate which supplied abundantly his simple wants put no strain upon his feeble intellect and will, that first crude human product of nature's Pliocene workshop turned out in the steaming lowland of Java, and now known to us as the Pithecanthropus erectus, found about him the climatic conditions generally conceded to have been necessary for man in his helpless, futile infancy, where man has remained in the tropics, with few exceptions he has suffered arrested development, his nursery has kept him a child, Though his initial progress depended upon the gifts which nature put into his hands, his later evolution depended far more upon the powers which she developed within him. These had no limit, so far as our experience shows, but their growth is painful, reluctant. Therefore they develop only where nature subjects man to compulsion, forces him to earn his daily bread, and thereby something more than bread. This compulsion is found in less luxurious but more salutary geographic conditions than the tropics afford in an environment that exacts a tribute of labor and invention in return for the boon of life, but offers a reward certain and generous enough to ensure the accumulation of wealth which marks the beginning of civilization. Most of the ancient civilizations originated just within the mild but drier margin of the temperate zone, where the cooler air of a short winter acted like a tonic upon the energies relaxed by the lethargic atmosphere of the hot and humid tropics, where congenial warmth encouraged vegetation but where the irrigation necessary to secure abundant and regular crops called forth inventiveness, cooperation, and social organization, and gave to the people their first baptism of redemption from savagery to barbarism. 
native civilizations of limited development had arisen in the tropics, but only where, as in Yemen, Mexico and Peru, a high, cool, semi-arid plateau, a restricted area of fertile soil, and a protected location alternately cobbled and spurred the nascent people, as the tropics have been the cradle of humanity, the temperate zone has been the cradle and school of civilization, here nature has given much by withholding much, here man found his birthright, the privilege of the struggle,